0: Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, The Rise of Alternative Music in the 80s and Beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way. To the rise of alternative music
1: hey everybody welcome back to accelerated culture i'm trey
0: and i'm lori
1: what have we got this week lori
0: this week we decided we're going to stick with 1985 but last episode as you'll remember we did more mainstream pop songs so this week we are going to highlight more songs off the beaten path if you will alternative songs because we really started to see around this time the alternative subculture i guess for lack of a better word was really starting to take root
1: you know what i was really annoyed me when ravana got credit for that 90 war.
0: for alternative music
1: yeah remember all that a third alternative on my back. I'm like, are you kidding?
0: Yeah, maybe down there by you. Maybe down south. But no, that well, wasn't...
1: even like, you know, MTV News and stuff was saying all that.
0: Huh. No, I, I mean, I remember they were talking about grunge and how Yeah, they well, they,
1: You know what? They didn't really start calling it grunge until Linda Diney,
0: Okay. Well, I guess I'll start us off then. All right, Go. Okay, so we're starting off today with a song by a Dutch wave band called Clan of Zymox.
1: I was going to say, these guys are freaking warriors. How many albums do they have out now? And they tour relentlessly.
0: Well, let's listen to their song, A Day, from 1985.
1: Seriously, I think these guys are like album 22.
0: That would not surprise me. I know they've been around for a long time. So they were signed to 4AD Records, which was like Mm -hmm. the big alternative uh, label at the time. We're going to encounter them a little bit later today. Now, this song, A Day, I think was, if not their first single, their second single. And it's very hard for us to do justice for this song on this podcast because we can only play... A, a short portion of the song. And there is about a two and a half minute, mostly instrumental introduction to that song that is just wild. And there's like a few places where you hear the vocalist kind of, you know, very quietly. Where are you? Where are you? And it's, it's just really, it, it builds this really kind of dark mood. So I, I can see why these guys are widely considered some of the first... Uh, dark wave artists that really uh, got any traction.
1: You know, you remember in the 90s, all those goth bands like uh, Switchblade Sympathy. I remember hearing this girl say, well, she was like, all these bands ripped off a day by a fan of Zymlox. And I was like, you know what? You're exactly right. All that stuff sounds exactly like that one song. you go back and listen to it, you're like, wow, that's, that's exactly right.
0: I finally got to see them live for the first time, and I want to say it was back in like 20, 2018 or 2019, and it was a fantastic show. I mean, they sound terrific live.
1: Because Roddy, he's said he got an ever-changing lineup. He's one of those types of bands where it's one driven person and are, you know, almost a revolving door.
0: I think that's the case for a lot of these bands, especially the ones that have been around since... The 80s, you know, uh-huh. I mean, it's very hard to keep the same lineup for 30 plus years, you know. So, do you want to take the next up?
1: Yes, up next we have Kate Bush with Running Up That Hill off of her Hounds of love album from 1985. And this has gotten some recent uh, popularity thanks to Stranger Things, the TV show.
0: Yeah, it was. It's nice to hear that it's making a resurgence. And I actually kind of wonder if that Stranger Things connection isn't why Kate Bush has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
1: It, it could very well be. I think all that was planned. I, I I don't know. I don't know how that works. I shouldn't say anything there.
0: You know, Kate Bush. I feel like she didn't really catch on here in the U.S. the way she did in the U.K. I mean, she was just a sensation in the UK. But she's one of those people that just has this distinctive, unmistakable voice. Just so, so gorgeous.
1: I think the thing that damaged her was she wouldn't tour.
0: Oh, really? See, now I didn't know that.
1: On her very first tour ever, I think it was in 79, there was a bad accident. Her road manager was killed in the wreck. Oh, and wow. She has refused to tour ever since. I don't even think she's never even been to the United States.
0: Wow, no, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a pretty well-known fact about her. There's, there's not much out there about it. She won't talk about it. I think she saw this person get killed, and it gave her, what do you call it? It's a TTT.
0: Post-traumatic stress disorder?
1: They, I could never get that out. Thank you, Lori. Mm-hmm. I uh-huh. think it gave her that. She just, well, she's only ever played live a few times.
0: Oh, wow. I
1: think we could count on two hands the amount of live performances she, she's given. One yeah. of them famously was this song, dave gilmore playing with her
0: oh dave gilmore from pink floyd
1: yeah you've never seen that video it's all over youtube oh
0: i'll have to take a look for it
1: yeah it's from some british tv show
0: well it'll be interesting if she does get inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame to see if she shows up
1: she i don't, don't think she would travel here
0: well i'm not really sure what her chances are i think there are a lot of bands that are more familiar to american audiences i you know i hate to say as much as i'd love to see her inducted i don't think this is her year
1: and we got, what, new orders up?
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about them, too.
1: You know, is it Pesh Mode? Are they already in, or is that this year?
0: Yeah, they were They were inducted the same year as uh, Nine Inch Nails and oh. uh, and Notorious B.I.G.
1: Okay, I'm a dummy.
0: That's all right, we won't hold it against you. <laughs> okay, so anything else you want to say about Kate Butch?
1: Not that much. You know, I don't know a whole lot about her. She's, to be honest with you, she's real hit her best to me. Okay. And uh, that's, you know, are you a big fan?
0: I only own one of her albums, but I will say that there was a day in, I think it was, it would have been 87 in high school. We were on a high school field trip for my physics class and uh, the class was small enough that we didn't have a bus. We were driving in two vans and, and my teacher was driving one of the vans and a song by Kate Bush came on the radio. Now, I don't remember what song it was. I had never heard anything like it before. I was just so immediately enamored with her voice. I would, shh, shh, shh. to everybody in the, in the van, shh, 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 shh. Because <laughs> I, wa- I wanted to hear, and I wanted to hear who it was. I wanted to hear the DJ, you know, announce who it was, because I had no idea who it was. And I mean, this was, this was pre Shazam, you know. I couldn't just pick up a cell phone and Shazam right. the song and see who it was. And honestly, I didn't find out who it was until several years later. But um, it was just—it was a moment. It was just like stop everything. The first time I heard her voice, it may very well have been this song. It may have been running up that hill, or it might have been—it um, might have been Love and Anger because I love that one. But oh my gosh. Hey, speaking of distinctive female (laughs) voices in 1985, the next song up is Cities and Dust by Susie and the Banshees. I'll let you talk about this first because I know you're a huge Banshees <laughs> fan, but I want to talk about this one song in particular.
1: You know, most teenage boys had pictures of, you know, from the swim, uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuiters show me while I had pictures of Susie Sue.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And uh, this was actually the, this wasn't the first song, this was actually would have been the second song I ever heard by. This album was the first full album I ever managed to get by, but it just blew me out of freaking water. I do not know what was going on.
0: You know, this was, I think, maybe the second song I heard by them, too. My best friend in high school was obsessed with Susie Sue. And, you know, she she had the makeup and everything. She had a French bulldog named Susie, spelled the same way as Susie Sue. But she came over to my house and she brought the 12-inch single of this song. And, you know, just like with Kate Bush, this was a stop-everything moment. Yeah, from the from the very beginning notes of this song and the subject matter. I mean, it's (laughs) well, I mean, I don't know if it's specifically about Pompeii Oh,
1: for sure. It it definitely is.
0: I mean, it's definitely about a a volcanic disaster of some sort. It's
1: about Pompeii.
0: Not the kind of subject matter that we would typically see in a pop song.
1: You know, I always say a lot of people just don't really listen to what Susie's singing about, but if you've listened to her, most of them are about horror movies or just something crazy like this. You just really got to sit down and listen closely to what she's saying.
0: Well, I mean, just even those opening lines, water was running, children were running, you were running out of time. Just, oh my gosh, I heard that, I got the chill. In fact, I'm getting the chills right now. It's it just, I don't know what it is about this song, this this is quite possibly my very favorite Susie song.
1: You know, they were very good friends with The Cure, obviously. Robert and Steve Severin were very close at the time, and their idea of a good time was to sit around and watch horror movies. And that, you know, you can see that later on in life when I found out about that, then I was like, man, now it all makes sense.
0: I was going to say, gee, that sounds like a certain podcast host that we know, Trey.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was doing the same thing at the time too. I just didn't know these bands were watching the same weird shit I was and writing songs about it.
0: So, was this inspired by a particular movie? Do you think, or was it just the the historical?
1: I, this is just it was inspired by um, hey, You know, if you've seen the Twelve Inch Single as an infamous, uh-huh. is it a couple that was molten in stone, or
0: yeah, where it's yeah like they were they were caught in the the ash of the volcano, yeah. and yeah. yes. Yeah, again, ooh, getting the chills just thinking about it. So, Susie, arguably one of the most influential alternative artists of the 80s. We're going to talk about a few more uh, in her circle.
1: She's playing her first shows in, what, 15 years this summer.
0: I saw that. Do you think she's going to have any American tour dates?
1: Yeah, she's already got one in Los Angeles at the, uh, what is that thing? The, that big festival? Not that hipster one, the other one.
0: All right, hang on. I'm going to look it up.
1: The one that Bauhaus played at last year, the Blood Red Moon was rising behind me. A
0: The Cruel World Festival? Yes. Okay, I'm not familiar with that one. It sounds goth.
1: It's definitely a. I wouldn't. They don't call it a gothic festival, but it's definitely all gothic and duet pieces. It's stuff we like.
0: Well, and I as I'm looking at the lineup here, I see several other artists that we're going to talk about today. Right, right. Including the next one, Trey. How
1: do you not know about this already?
0: Because I don't follow tours in Los Angeles because I'm not going to get all the way to damn Los Angeles. This is one of those (laughs)
1: things that just like Facebook exploded with it the day it happened.
0: Well, you're not on Facebook anymore and you're my source for all this stuff. But this
1: was before all that happened. I I must have made 20 posts about it and the Sisters of Mercy tour.
0: Okay, all right. So listeners, now we're arguing like we're married. We're now (laughs) in episode 14. And we're comfortable with each other. And is this it is 14? how we are now. It's fourteen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So speaking of the Cruel World Festival, do you want to introduce the next song?
1: We have If There's a Heaven Above by Lovin' Rockets off their seventh stream of Teenage Heaven album, which was their debut LP. And there's a lot to say here. I'll let you take this.
0: Okay. Well, let's listen to the song first. so yeah love and rockets they were created kind of as a spin-off of the band Bauhaus.
1: Bauhaus had split up so there was tones on tail first
0: oh which i love
1: With without kevin haskins the drummer there was a david jay to let them i don't know somebody from Bauhaus sat out on tones on tail okay it was david J. it was david J. okay And then they, David J. I don't don't know the story behind this, came back to the fold. They became Loving Rockets, which is named after an adult-oriented comic book that was actually produced in San Francisco.
0: That I knew. I knew that they were named after a comic book. Right. We actually, uh, in our episode about John Hughes, we had played one of the other songs off of this album. But If There's a Heaven Above was their first single. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of the bands that would later go on to be very popular in the goth and alternative scene had their first singles out in 85
1: for sure all these albums are talking about a fact pivotal albums in the alternative genre yes but this album i i didn't hear it until 1987 i heard express first and then that gains of steam here and they reissued seventh dream of teenage i had some special edition of it came with a bonus single had uh, a lucifer sam on it some other couple other non-album b-sides on it
0: so love and rockets is one of the bands that's going to be playing at this cruel world festival yes indeed
1: they are they reunited love and rockets
0: yeah now that would be interesting to see and trey the next band is also going to be playing at the cruel world festival are they Yes, this is one of our favorites here at Accelerated Culture. I'm speaking, of course, of Echo and the Bunnymen. And the song that came out in 85 was Bring on the Dancing Horses.
1: This is one of their best songs.
0: And the crowd goes nuts when they play this live. They really do.
1: I love the twelve-inch uh, version. It just starts off with that keyboard riff. That's like really the only thing that's different about that. That's, I just love that way that keyboard riff just kicks in there. That sequence. What was the name of this album? Ocean Rain. That's it. Did that
0: sound right? Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: that's it. It's a great album. Everything they've done is great.
0: Well, Ocean Rain is widely regarded as I think one of their best. If not their best, the definitive.
1: I famously heard them in 86 on the Pretty and Pink soundtrack, which this song is on. Right. I was going to say their next album was their last album, wasn't it?
0: Was that Echo and the Bunnyman? Yeah. That's actually the first album of theirs that I heard.
1: The 87 one? Yeah. Lips Like Sugar and
0: Yep, yep, yep. Well, they did get back together again after that. But well, yeah, I saying,
1: was... yeah, until the, what, the late 90s, that was their last album
0: yeah all right
1: are we moving on or
0: yes and do you want me i mean i know
1: you You say that I, i'm not even gonna attempt that okay
0: all right <laughs> i'm probably gonna slaughter this so any scottish listeners out there please uh please write in if you need to correct me the song is called a Geni." genny by the Cocteau Twins. Now, I understand that this is a Scottish slang for a seashell.
1: That was just made up. Listen to their other.
0: Yeah. But no, <laughs> you know what? Let, let's listen to a bit of this song, though, because this is absolutely one of their, I think, top, top songs.
1: All righty. I wouldn't hear these guys until like 1989.
0: Well, so uh, Cacto Twins, we've talked about them before. It's Elizabeth Fraser, Robin Guthrie, and Simon Raymond. And Liz Fraser is known for her vocal styling. She has, like Kate Bush, a very distinctive voice. But most of their songs, the lyrics are what's called glossolalia, which is basically just nonsense syllables. So, if you spent hours listening to the Tacto Twin songs trying to figure out the lyrics, I got news for you: <laughs> there's nothing there to figure out.
1: Has she ever talked more about what 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 exactly she was doing with the singing? In what way? I mean, as far as just the gibberish stuff, like especially on Heaven or Las Vegas.
0: Well, Heaven or Las Vegas, I think, was one of the closest ones where they actually had something resembling. English lyrics.
1: <laughs> there was a few decipherable lines in there, but some of the stuff went out right in the world.
0: As the years went on, I think they got away from the glossolalia, and I think that they started to do somewhat recognizable uh, words. Now, that's not to say that their lyrics were completely cohesive narrative, but... um. We saw this a lot with uh, Dead Can Dance, too, which was another one of their contemporaries. They're both on the 4AD record label. But uh, yeah, Lisa Gerard like uh, Liz Fraser. And I think very frequently they're kind of lumped into the same sentence as I'm doing. But they both really did this kind of creating syllables rather than than lyrics with any sort of meaning. So, Mel, you're shaking your head.
1: (laughs) you know this is one of those bands that people are all they're all in with them that people just are indifferent about there's not a lot of in between these guys
0: now are we talking about cocktail twins or are we talking about
1: oh deck and dance i'm sorry i got off track here thinking we were doing a deck dance song
0: yep that's why i'm trying to get you back on track
1: cocktail twins are kind of the same way too though
0: okay
1: most of the people i know that like them just fucking love them you know uh-huh. You know, lift, I saw them live in 1990, and uh, their tape machine was on stage like the member of the band. And also Liz Frazier. Oh, yeah. She had, does she have bad stage fright?
0: Yes. yes she, she looked does.
1: down the whole time. She had her microphone down in front of her. She didn't move or anything.
0: Well, you know that that's the origin of the term gaze, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I was familiar with that. Yeah. She's got a real squeaky voice. At the end of the night, she was like, hey, some kind of curtsied and shambled it out the stage. Also, she's like three feet tall.
0: You know, I'm starting to wonder if maybe she's not immortal. <laughs> because one of my colleagues at the college where I teach shared a photo.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've, I think I've seen that. Yeah.
0: You know the one I'm talking about of, of students of the, the Bauhaus school from like the 1930s? 30s
1: yeah yeah you put that on facebook didn't you
0: i think i probably did cause yeah I, I swear i mean i know it's from the 30s i swear it looks like liz fraser
1: she's got gray hair now but she dyed her hair she looked like she was fucking 25
0: yeah yeah no i i think she's immortal
1: some people at work the other day that are much younger than me that finally asked me how old i was and i was like i'll be 53 in april and they were like
0: yeah you don't look at
1: what the hell have you how do you and i'm like i I don't smoke crack. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. We stay out of the sun.
1: You're right.
0: I uh, th- somebody had asked me once at one of the colleges that I was teaching at. You know, it, it's just offhand my age, and I t- I told him, and and he's like, "Wow, you know, what's your secret?" And I said, "Oh, you know, bathing in virgin blood." And I turned around, and there's the vice president of the college right behind me, and she was Serbian, and she just smiled and nodded oh, and walked well. off.
1: I <laughs> think she knew deep. How good is her English?
0: Oh, very good. Very good.
1: Well, but you know, (laughs) like when I was in Michigan, I was around some Mexicans who knew English, but they didn't know a lot of slang jokes. So sometimes you'd say stuff and they'd just be like, yeah.
2: No,
0: she knew. She knew. That's funny. Yeah. Um, Do you want to take the, since I took uh, Cocteau Twins, do you want to take New Order and, and move us on?
1: Alright, up next we have New Water with the Perfect Kiss off their landmark 1985 album, Low light. This album, this is a, a, a freaking landmark album.
0: This album is one of those, I mean, I talk very frequently about a moment in time. And <sighs> Low Life is one of those that just kind of captures this, I don't know, kind of angst that I think a lot of people were feeling in 85.
1: You know, this is another album I, heard, uh, I didn't do shit about anymore. Uh-huh. So I had no contacts, like, of their previous work or anything. I just heard this. I thought it was their first album, to be honest with you. Little did I know, New Order and and Joy Division and all that, this just blew me out of damn water.
0: Yeah, New Order uh, obviously rose from the ashes of Joy Division after Ian Curtis's suicide. Now, I'm curious to hear your take, Trey. So as you know, New Order slash Joy Division... Have been nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How do you feel about them sharing a nomination?
1: I think it's a good I thought it was pretty cool when I saw it. And it, it's, I don't think Joy Division on their own has a big enough catalog to get in there, which I've seen some serious discussion about that on, you know, in various space. When I was still on Facebook, because they only did two albums, granted, they're landmark albums, and it's, they definitely defined the genre those albums but there's another fair argument too the joy division was going to turn into new water you know they had toured with the cure and Bauhaus. actually robert smith introduced joy division to keyboards because he had just gotten a synthesizer and was like look at this you know and they had got really into them, so i don't know what do you think
0: i have a problem with it i don't like the fact that they're being treated as one band they're two distinct bands they don't do that for other artists i mean we have you know
1: well, Gar- this you know th- this is a what well, they didn't want to change their day they were still going to be joy division what, what was their manager saying well he was like no you need to pick a new name you, you, you move on from that pick a new name for the band
0: well and i think that that was smart Very few bands can survive the death of a lead singer. Mm -hmm. I think ACDC is probably the only known exception to the rule.
1: And another thing, I don't feel like you know this, but they were actually pondering fire, Ian, when he passed away. Oh, really? This epilepsy was getting so out of control. It was getting to a point where he was no longer going to be able to perform. So they were contemplating, letting him go. They'd already brought in Julie Gilbert in the New Order. Right. And they were getting
0: I was gonna say that's shitty.
1: It's shitty, but they were they kinda had no choice too. I don't think they were gonna like you're fired, you'll never come back here again, but I think they were gonna, you know.
0: Right. Well, anyway, getting back to my argument about why I think that they should (laughs) should not have had a combined nomination for the two. There are a number of artists who are in the rock and roll hall of fame. As a member of more than one band,
1: like I said, this is a completely different situation than those. This but it's is...
0: not. But it's not. That's it just total... it. I, is... I, I have a bit. I okay. Please let me let me finish my <laughs> thought. Okay, let me finish my thought, and then you can you can weigh in. But this is on one. Okay, on one hand, I get it's increasing their chances of getting in, but on the other hand, that is depriving Peter Hook and uh, Bernard Sumner, and the third guy.
1: Stephen Morris. You know, Peter Hook won't have nothing to do with him anymore, so he's he's uh, depriving himself. And I love Peter. I love Peter. Don't get me wrong. Go ahead, Chris. We've got Laurie on the I would would really
0: like to be able to finish my thought. It's depriving those three gentlemen of the chance to be inducted as part of more than one band. David Crosby was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in more than one band. Eric Clapton was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for more than one band. I don't think that this is fair to do this. And I I think it's also, it's setting a precedent that I don't really like.
1: Well, you also got to keep in mind, a lot of people have no idea who Joy Division is.
0: Right. So they would
1: never get the votes.
0: I'll be honest. The first time that I saw on a New Order album and I saw the songwriting credits, and some of the New Order songs were written by Joy Division. And I saw by Joy Division. I actually thought it was a lady named Joy.
1: Well, I was going to say, you realize the first New Order album was basically the last Joy Division album.
0: I mean, it was basically all the material that they never got to record with Ian. Or they did, and they re-recorded it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he they had recorded the music parts, and the singing or nothing was done.
0: Uh-huh. So... I don't like the idea that they have separate nominations. I'd be curious to hear what the band members think. But you are absolutely correct. I'd be very curious if they do get in. I'd be very curious to see if Hookie shows up.
1: I don't think... Uh,
0: There's a lot of bad blood there.
1: Oh, yeah. and I, I don't like it. I love Peter Hook, and I love B. Warder. They're they're just not the same about him. I mean, they're, they're just nothing about him. He is one of the most unique bass players on, in history.
0: He has such a distinctive sound. And right. It's that unmistakable. That lead bass.
1: That mm-hmm. lead bass is just listen to Ned's Atomic Dust, But They were heavily influenced by that.
0: Definitely. And, and when you say a lead bass, I mean, not prior to that, but Primus also, you know, they had like multiple basses, but that wasn't a concept. You know, you never hear anybody talk about a lead bass guitar, you know, because it was always kind of relegated to the rhythm section in the background, whereas New Order, it became part of the melody. It was, you know, it was more than rhythm. It was the melody of the song.
1: Heck, half the time, you can't tell which is a bass and which is a guitar. You're like, wait, 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 wait. Who, yes. who's do, who exactly is playing this part?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I remember asking uh, my boyfriend at the time, who was in a band, I'm like, what instrument is this? Is this a bass or is this a guitar? So, I got a little heated. <laughs>
1: no, I wasn't I was I wasn't bad at you or nothing. I I didn't expect you to get so intense.
0: Well, I'm very opinionated.
1: You're not the only one. There's a, you should go and like join a new water group on Facebook and look at the, it's getting brutal in there. I'm like, ass. Ah. I mean, they're getting dead. Just, I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I don't get in it. I'm like, oh, oh. All
0: right. What's next, Trey?
1: Up next, we have the cure and with in between days off of their, the head on the door out. I'm sure that everybody that knows the B- Cure knows is my favorite band of all time. And this is the very first song I ever heard by them. Let's well, we play the song first, and I'll tell the story of that. You got it. This is going to be long. Okay. I'll break it up, because they're going to be at every episode from here on out. Okay. Because they've, rele- they've released something every year the last the 80s. Okay. So, you, you want to go with it?
0: Do you want me to talk about the song first? You
1: start that part. Yeah. And that-
0: okay. This wasn't the first song I heard by The Cure, but this was the first song I fell in love with by The Cure. I tend to associate music with things in my life with events and this may come as a surprise to you or maybe not but I was a theater kid in high school I remember we were working on a production of a one-act play and I remember borrowing the CD from the director of the play that kind of became the soundtrack for that time of my life specifically though this song I just listened to this song over and over and over it's so good. I know the Cure is considered to be like goth, you know, dark music, but this is. Let's face it, this is a pop song.
1: The Cure could be top forty as much as they could goth. I mean, they yes. were all over the place. They, people, anybody that people are arguing with you about that, I'm like you're off your rocker. I mean, you know, they're, they 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 were a goth fan. The they can be, but they've done so much more than that. I actually don't like hearing referred to as a guy fan, Anyways, Halloween of 1985. You guys, the audience out there, I know you probably remember this, Lord. we had just gotten MTV in our air, in my city, and uh, MTV would have guest DJs from time to time back there. You remember that, Lord? And so on Halloween of 85, they had Elvira, Mistress, is it Mistress of the Night or Mistress of the Dark? Mistress
0: of the Dark
1: mistress of the dark she played the in between days video i really did know and I, I liked the song and i wanted to get the album boy did i i had no idea what i was walking into with that and i got my parents to take me to the mall that weekend and surprisingly enough they had the album that came a lot easier i got it i taken home and played it and i just had absolutely no clue what to think of this yeah, I, th- I thought it was just a new wave band. I was thinking never went to Thompson Clans or Duran Duran or something like that. This album, is, while it's far from their darkest album, there's definitely some dark, bizarre subject matter on this album. And there's a lot of stories behind these songs, which we won't be able to get into here. But the song The Blood is about a tequila they got while on tour in Mexico in 1982. And I think, but well, I'm pretty sure most of the rest of the album is about drugs. Songs like "Screw," I, I think the song First is about doing drugs and having sex with on them. Robert says he got the song title from having a bad case of the flu. And he was hallucinating a man's face on his bedroom door.
0: Oh, the head on the door.
1: Yeah, which I kind of think he was probably tripping on acid, not really having the flu, and just didn't really want to say that. And then there's Close to Me, which I think is about anxiety.
0: Well, you mentioned Close to Me and Trey. That's the next song on our list.
1: Indeed it is.
0: Let's listen to that one.
1: You know, something else to say about this album is Robert's life, and they weren't married yet at this point, and given them an ultimatum before the recording of this album. said, you know, hopefully you'll have some success with this album, where I, I wish you, you'd give it up, just so we could have a normal life. And of course, this album broke the cure-free worldwide. And, you know, got them... And I don't think this one really got them any mainstream success, did it?
0: Not initially. I think it probably, after the fact, I think people started to discover it.
1: I think in between days entered the Hot 100. I'm not sure about close to me.
0: You're correct. Close to me was on the U.S. Dance Club chart, but it wasn't on the the top 100.
1: I think in between days hit the Hot 100.
0: Uh, You are correct. It reached 99. In between days reached 99 in the Hot 100. One of the things that stands out, I think, with this one is the, the clapping. In the beginning for the percussion, which is a little bit unusual. And
1: you know how they did the clapping? No, tell me. One of those little cheap, really tiny Casio keyboards you could get at like drugstores back then. It's the little clap thing. Where the... you
0: sample, you did the sample. And no, not
1: had... that's right. Before no? they, a little bit before they had those, it was just on the little rhythm thing on there at a clap. Oh. And they took it out of that.
0: Oh, well, it works.
1: The Cure were big into buying toys. So were seasoning the Banshees. There's a, whole lot we could say about these both these bands and their past pastimes, but they had brought a bunch of toy keyboards and took it off a lot of Let Up. And this was when they were in that phase of wearing those ridiculous Japanese suits.
0: I don't think I've seen that.
1: Yeah, you have. It's, they're wearing them in both these videos. The big oh. oversized black suits with the white shirt under. They had toured Japan in 1984 and just fell in love with Japan and brought a bunch of clothes over there. That was the Cure's look for this album. They're wearing them in the Cure and Arch,
2: oh, if you okay. get back
1: in orange. Oh, okay. Robert, if you look at the Cure, every album, that they change their look. You know, everything about the band is different. They got the hair and the makeup, but if you look at the clothes, they all match. It's a different style of yeah. clothing. So, this was a pretty big album for them. And like I said, I had didn't know anything about them had no idea what golf was and I heard all these a lot of these bands here around the same time was noticing all these bands had a dark theme but I, that that word didn't come into play in my life until about a year or two later.
0: So last thing I want to note about the cure is I think this was right right before they were about to hit mainstream fame. I think their next album after this is when they would start to really get...
1: Well, they had a top 40 hit with Just Like Heaven, 87. So yeah, this, this is when they started gaining steam. Yeah. Just got them out there.
0: Okay, should we move on to Jesus and Mary Chain? Yes, let's do. All right, so next we have another one of my favorite bands, the Jesus and Mary Chain. And this is off of their debut album, Psycho Candy. The song is called Just Like Honey. All right, so what can we say about Jesus and Mary Chain that we haven't already said? Exactly,
1: uh, we we covered them already. How did we cover them already?
0: I think in the John Hughes.
1: Oh yes, I yes, think so. that's right. Yeah,
0: they are a Scottish rock band founded by brothers Jim and William Reid. Hugely, hugely influential. A lot of '90s alternative artists would cite them as an influence. Uh, Pixies come to mind, but uh, absolutely love this band and i know a lot of my a lot of my friends locally don't agree with me on this i very frequently my friends will be like lori i know you love jesus and mary chain we don't i'm like okay yeah oh, they're fair
1: <laughs> i don't understand people like that they're fantastic
0: oh they are now they do have a bit of a reputation they the, <laughs> the brothers have a tendency to get into fist fights and i think it's actually happened on stage a few times
1: i think that only really happened at this era I think they got us in trouble, and the label was like, look, you guys need to quell the antics, or we're going to ditch you. And they kind of started getting along better.
0: Well, you know, and this is another one that had broken up and then reformed, and uh, you know, finally got a chance to see them live again a few years ago. And again, absolutely fantastic. I'm at the point in my life where all the bands that I loved in my teens that I could never see... I wasn't allowed to because I was too young or because I didn't have the money or the transportation to go to a concert. Now I'm really happy that these bands are together and putting out new material sometimes, and sometimes they are touring, and I finally get the chance to see them. And for me, finally getting the chance to see Jesus and Mary Chain, and I think it was about 10 years ago now at Riot Fest, that was fulfillment of a dream for me. You know what I mean? I just love them so much.
1: Me too. that this is a I had me Hello band again. I, I actually saw it in nineteen ninety with the then unknown diamond Snails opening for them. Oh wow. And then I almost blew them off the stage. And Jim even said something about it after their first Mary Chain came out, their first two or three songs but and Jim was like, We that opening act is something that I saw <laughs> I probably talked about this too. I saw it all the lose ninety two and they were fantastic. They're a great band. I'm, I was glad to see them come back too. It was sort of, sort of sad there when they broke up at what 97, 98?
0: That sounds about right.
1: They actually got this. This was an actual fist fight on stage, like the documentary. They went their separate ways. Yeah. You know, I was watching some live footage of them recently, a few months back, and they sounded really slow.
0: Slower than on than the album versions, you mean?
1: Right. I was like, a de- guys.
0: Which is unusual because usually most bands will tell you, especially the drummer, will tell you live. They tend to play a little bit faster because it gets the energy of the crowd up.
1: When you see a band doing that, it means they can't hear themselves. It's like a technical problem.
0: Oh, I guess. You, you have to
1: think, you know, those little wedges on the front of the stage. You ever wondered what those were for?
0: No, I knew what those were for. Those are, yes. are field monitors.
1: Well, so they can hear what they're doing. Probably the right. monitors were too low and they're going, fuck her.
0: Can <laughs> you turn it up? Yeah.
1: They got in ear things out of these, so that's that's really a problem. I saw that happen to the cure once. Oh yeah. They couldn't hear them so and they stopped playing. Robert just kind of stood there glaring.
0: Well, that's really That's really hard for all musicians, but especially for singers, if yeah. you cannot hear yourself. Exactly. You can't tell if you're if you're in pitch. Right. So so yeah, that's a big deal. Hey, so speaking of bands, that i get to see live the very first band that i ever saw live in concert i had to use a fake id to sneak in mom if you're listening i can explain <laughs> i'm speaking of course of naked raygun they are a chicago band and this is their single libido
2: Low, my libido is low. I don't want to have sex, I'd have played myself. My libido is low, my libido is low. Well, I guess it happened. Just last week. I got all hooked up by too much speed, and I dare till my prostate. It fell out.
0: So, yes, I was with a friend who was a huge naked ray gun fan. I had actually never heard of them before I went to see them live. They were absolutely fantastic, amazing. Uh, their live show is well known. They are Chicago legends.
1: Yeah, I thought they were from California.
0: Yeah, now why is that?
1: I was always buying all those, I was into skateboarding in the mid to late 80s. Okay. They were always in the skateboard magazines and those ads with the oh. other skate park bands. So. I just just seen every one of those artists. They were always in ads with, like, the uh, suicidal tendencies and stuff, so I just it's one of those bands. I gotcha. I had the album Bray Gun, Decade Breakout. Uh-huh. I can't remember much about it.
0: The what was that? Name... was that?
1: Was that uh-huh. 86 when that came out?
0: The album called Naked Ray Gun?
1: No, the album Bray Gun, Decade Breakout.
0: 1990. Really? Uh-huh. Okay,
1: go ahead. I'm a dummy. Okay.
0: No, it's all right, because that actually would have been the tour that I saw them on. Okay. The last time I saw them live actually ended up in the mosh pit and injured not only my leg, but uh, my nose. So I actually ended up teaching a class the next day, because as our listeners know, I'm a college professor, teaching a class the next day with a bandage (laughs) on my nose. So that was the... Last time that I went to a show that had a Mosh pit, that is officially, I'm getting too old for this shit.
1: You got in a fight or you just got beat no, up in the No, It
0: was just, pit. it was just, yeah. Oh, wasn't, I was like, wait wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it wasn't a fight. It was just things got a little rough in the pit, as, as they tend to do. You know, one of the first things I learned at that first Naked Ray Gun show is you stay away from the pit unless you want to get thrown in. And, you know, my friend, as we were getting ready to go to the show, she explained the rules. She's like, if you're wearing a skirt or a dress, they will throw you into the pit. So if you're going to, you had to wear leggings or something underneath it. And, you know, the old Mosher's etiquette, you know, if somebody falls, you extend a hand, you pick them up.
1: I think that's gone out the door. From what I hear from other people, if you fall in a pit nowadays, you're you're
0: fucked.
1: Yeah. Every man, every man and woman for him. Him or herself.
0: Yeah. The other thing about Naked Raygun that I think they're well known for is there's a point in every show where they stop the show and they the audience starts chanting "free shit, free shit," and they start throwing out all kinds of goodies, you know, little little weird random items to to the crowd. But I seem to remember seeing a I want to say it was a kazoo. That said, below me" on the side. Is <laughs> one of them, and the crowd just went nuts for it. So I think you
1: could buy those on like Amazon. I've, I've yeah, sure you, I've seen that before.
0: I'm sure you can, but I mean, like in the late '80s, you know, to have a, a band stop the show and start just, you know, throwing random shit to the audience. I mean, it, it it was part of the Naked Ray Gun experience.
1: That's pretty cool. That was a common thing with punk rock and skate rock bands to just throw crap into the crowd. But that's a really cool way of doing it. Yeah. I don't want it to make light of the way they do it. That's pretty neat.
0: Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, a lot of people in my high school would ask me, you know, what band did you go see? And I'd say Naked Ray Gun. Naked Reagan? Like Ronald Reagan? No. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the way I pronounce the word. No, Naked Ray Gun. Pew, pew so yeah i got some puzzled looks there hey speaking of punk acts in the late 80s there was another one from philadelphia that you might know trey and that is the dead milkman
1: yes and who doesn't know this there
0: uh-huh and in 85 they came out with the song bitchin camaro,
2: bitchin camaro.
0: Are freaking hilarious, and I mean, I know I only played part of the song, which doesn't really do it justice because there's this whole build up to it where they're talking about buying a Motley Crue album to so because the money is going to go to get the band members out of jail, and it's the whole song is hilarious. I mean, you are just as likely to hear these guys on Doctor Demento as you were on any like alternative. Uh, radio station
1: you know i actually heard i think it what's the singer's name oh. i actually heard them say once they didn't really expect to have any success they were just sort of you know fucking around with this first album. the next thing you know they're selling copies of it touring which is kind of cool right and of course you know we'll be hearing a lot more from these guys over the course of the next five or six episodes of the show
0: Bitch and Camaro was just absolutely hilarious, and for a teen girl, the Camaro was, like, the cool car. If you were dating somebody that had a Camaro, you know, you were the shit.
1: Well, those were all over down here. That was, you know, I'm in Georgia, so, you know, the Rednecks and their Camaros, the Irocs, and all that stuff. We used to play this song to annoy those people. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I can Seriously. see why it would. Yeah, I can. I mean, it's definitely not without a sense of irony.
1: People like me we were we were truly outcasts. So anything we could do to throw it back at it, we we were on it.
0: Being subversive, huh?
1: Yeah, these guys helped us out greatly. Thanks. If you listen to one of you,
0: okay, we got two more songs left, Trey, and I think these two are both songs that I picked. But uh, do you want to introduce the Oingo Boingo song or?
1: Okay, up next we have Oingo Boingo. And their song, Just Another Day, off of their Dead Man's Party release. And this is another album basically put a band on the freaking map. And so let's listen to it.
0: so i chose this one because you know i know most people know the song dead man's party most people know the song weird science this was one of their singles off the album and i quite frankly i think this is the best track on the album this
1: is a great song i got a soft spot for no one this forever but hey
0: oh i love that well we played that one in the halloween episode
1: right right
0: oingo boingo again one of my absolute favorite bands of the 80s danny elfman is a musical genius I mean, this whole album from start to finish, there is not a bad track on it's it. No,
1: it's a great album.
0: It really is.
1: The thing is, with Uncle one guy, was, they could be real hit or miss at times.
0: Well, I think they kind of got a reputation as a little bit of a novelty act. I don't think that was helped by them appearing in, like, for example, Back to School. And I don't, I don't think that that's a fair assessment. I, I think that they are a lot more than that.
1: I agree. And they got a lot better when they started leaning away from the sky. Uh-huh. Kind of stuff. They kind of kept it in their own unique way. They just sort of redefined it. And this is one of those bands, there was like 98 people in it.
0: <laughs>
1: I got that uh, Halloween vibe. That came out.
0: Yes, oh, that was fantastic.
1: And I did, I, did, I was like, I didn't know there was 300 people in this band. What the hell?
0: i How many people are on
1: that stage?
0: This is one of the bands that I will forever regret not being able to see them live. And they are never going to get back together.
1: Did they even really do any big widespread tours?
0: They were mostly Southern California. I think they did a farewell tour in...
1: Yeah, and apparently it came right in two cities, minutes from me, and I didn't Mm -hmm. catch wind of it.
0: Well, and it came here to Chicago, too, but I was just not in a position financially or emotionally to to go to a concert at that time. But that's another story. But that is, I think, one of the great regrets of my life is never being able to see Oingo Boingo live. And I have a dear friend who's originally from Southern California, and he has seen them so many times that I am so jealous when he tells me, you know, all, all these stories about their concerts and stuff. I'm just so jealous.
1: You know, I didn't know. I I didn't like this album when I got it. No, no, I didn't know. I didn't know. I I was like, "What the hell is this?"
0: It's kooky. It's quirky. It grew
1: on it grew on me obviously over the years. But at first, I was like, "This is hideous. What is this?"
0: It is heavily Scott influenced, but also, you know, Southern California. You're right on the border of Mexico. There are a number of Mexican Americans in the band, and a lot of their songs, a lot of their themes draw very heavily on. Mm-hmm themes like you know day of the dead and and things that are uh, common to their culture really a very cool blend it's very unique Uh, other bands have tried it but i don't think anybody has succeeded in the way that oingo boingo has
1: you know if you ask me they really hit a stride with this album their final album is just one of the most underrated albums in history i think
0: now, when you say their final album, which one are you talking about? Do you mean the final it? studio album or do their you fi- mean their... the
1: final studio album? The one from '94 with their, yeah, what is that song? Where he's making fun of Republicans, the single off the album?
0: Insanity? Insanity? Yes. Was that the yes. You know what? That was the one Oingo Boingo song I was disappointed by.
1: Didn't you like it?
0: No, I, I was a little bit disappointed. I think I I had higher expectations at that point. God, I was but... playing
1: the shit out of that. Was it ninety four? Ooh, yeah, ninety
0: four. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was. I I I could put it down.
0: Okay, um, I you know <laughs> we got we got one song left.
1: You've introduced this band, because I am famously not farther though.
0: Okay, so Trey, <laughs> yes, we know Trey does not like The Smiths.
1: It's not, you know what? Let me say something right here before we get into this. It's- The Smiths themselves are okay. And we'll get more into that in a bit. Go ahead.
0: I love their music, Trey. I'm not saying I love anybody's personalities. Arguably, their absolute best song How Soon Is Now?
1: This is a good song.
0: So this was originally a B-side of their single from the previous year, William, It Was Really Nothing. And then they added it to the U.S. release of their 1985 album, Meat is Murder. Do you know anything about this song in particular, Trey?
1: Not really. Is there a story here?
0: Well, there's a little bit, just kind of 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 the making of it. So Johnny Marr, as you know, legendary guitarist, He was in the studio with his bandmates, Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce, and they were messing around and they actually uh, were riffing off of That's All Right by Elvis Presley. You know the song?
1: Yeah, I do, actually.
0: That's all right, mama. Yeah. So they were riffing off of that. And so Johnny Marr came up with a guitar riff kind of loosely based on that. But they ran it through a tremolo filter. Actually... They ran it through three different tremolo filters set to completely different oscillation frequencies. And that's how they created this kind of like warped or, I mean, to me, it almost sounds like underwater kind of sound with the guitar. And so they recorded like 15 minutes of tape, just that. The demo that they recorded, they called it The Swamp. That's what they wrote on the tape. And then they gave it to Morrissey. Morrissey, I I guess, pulled some lyrics out of his notebook that he had and uh, apparently was able to record the lyrical part in only two takes, which is almost unheard of. The end result, I would argue, is a musical masterpiece. This song, it's timeless. You know, uh, there's no way that this sounds, you know, some songs you listen to and you're like, yeah, that's totally 85. This one is timeless. It sounds as good in 2023 as it did in 1985. And especially that long instrumental intro is just perfect for a long drive at night, you know? You're you're on the open highway, you know, you kind of the lights are passing you and this this is the song to go on a long drive to. What you got, Trey?
1: <laughs> I yeah, they just you know they really they never grabbed me okay I don't know why that. Uh, there was a lot of bands the similar so the House Martin's. there was I don't know if you've ever heard of this band there was a band I think they was from California called the Lucy's
0: no I haven't that heard of had
1: that had a real similar sound too that whole acoustic heat yeah
0: <laughs> well yeah, so I think the Smiths, along with The Cure, I think were probably the two like best-known alternative bands from this period, and arguably two of the most influential. I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, Trey, there have been a number of times where I have bought tickets to see Morrissey, and every time I've bought tickets, the concert has been canceled.
1: And that's where I take an issue with this, guy because... You know, he's cost a lot of people a whole lot of money. And that's just not cool. You you know, disappoint the people that split their... These Morrissey fans are rap. I mean, they're by a base, they're by his records, his singles, as you know... And to treat the people that have put you where you are like that is just really uncool to me.
0: Yeah, Morrissey really has a reputation... There was some rock magazine that posted recently, like, the 25 most difficult singers, and Morrissey, Big Surprise, was number one.
1: In 2015, I went to a uh, Elta John show in my hometown of Augusta with my dad. Our seats were next, right up on the sound. It's a really small civic center here, and they have to really cram stuff in. So our seats were basically, the soundboard was on my right shoulder. I looked over. And one of the guys back there operating it was wearing a skinny puppy shirt, but we kind of exchanged glances to, This is about an hour before the show started, so they were just kind of hanging out, wait. And I finally went cool shirt. I got to talking to the guy. And he said, "I've worked for a lot of bands that you you probably into." And I don't know how it came up, but he was talking about he worked for Morrissey for a week once, and I was like, "Oh, do tell." So he told me about that. You know, if you work for him, you can't eat meat while you're on that tour. And he's real strict on them. They couldn't leave their hotel rooms at night, things like that. This guy was like, I found it just took the loss of faith and said, fuck this and quit. And this was about two months before that infamous article went online, circulating around Facebook, which I'm sure you saw, Lori, where some other people who had worked for him before came out. was like, look, you, you wouldn't believe what this guy does. So it was, it was pretty interesting. and I, You know, I didn't doubt the guy one bit things he was telling me but when that story came out i was like holy shit that dude was 100 you know telling me the truth here
0: i i i i got nothing i i don't
1: i mean that it, it, it,
0: it sounds like he's very very high maintenance
1: it's saying you know that the guy the, the thing this guy I was talking to seemed to have the, most the issue with was being locked in a hotel room and i he was like you know man i'll go out Oh, he was telling me you couldn't break things like you couldn't get a six pack and go to your room with it things like that. He was like, "That's just, yeah, you don't tell me what to do in my my time, you know."
0: Yeah, I mean that's the kind of thing that you see for like, well, cults.
1: Or I should make this guy actually work for a company and they put him on the tour. So he didn't really. I don't think he knew what he was walking into. I'm kind of like, how could you not? You know, there's rumors like this is swirled about him years but I, I just really that really soured me i just i don't think that's cool at all right right and then of course there's a stunt he pulled in los angeles this past fall he canceled a show in la roughly i, I think he might have played one song or did it did the show even go on but he cost a promoter about a million dollars because the promoter had to pay all the people who were working at the venue everything everything had to go through so this guy was, I'm surprised he hasn't taken a hit out on him. That's a whole lot of money. Word is, he'll never tour America again after that. I don't know how true that is, but that's what people are saying.
0: I don't know how many people would take a chance on him at yeah, this I point. Mean, yeah, I mean, hurting
1: somebody that bad. Yeah. That's crazy.
0: That's unfortunate.
1: Word around the campfire with Cure fans is, is that Morris is definitely afraid of uh, Simon Gallup. And apparently Peter Hook, too, because they both kind of been pretty rude to him at festivals and such in the past.
0: Interesting. Well
1: I mean, you know, if the cure were doing something like that, I'd get mad at them too. Because people have called me, like, what if the cure did that? I'm like, I'd be pissed off about it. You don't you don't do that to people that are supporting, give, basically giving yeah. you your lifestyle. That's yeah. not right.
0: Okay, so I think that brings us to an end.
1: This is a great episode.
0: So yes, very interesting episode. We've had some very interesting discussions. So Trey, we're coming back in two weeks, but we're going to do another episode about 1985. Is that correct?
1: Indeed it is. Next up, we're going to take a look at Duran Duran. And (laughs) what are we we doing there? 84, 85?
0: Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about late 84, 85. We're going to talk not only about Duran Duran, but also about two of the band's side projects that took place in 85. One of them was Arcadia, and the other was the Power Station. Yes. So there's enough going on with Duran Duran and their side projects that we felt it warrants its own episode. Not to mention, we love any chance we can get to gush about Duran Duran.
1: Indeed we do. And this, you know, this is gonna be a great episode. This is gonna be fun. I saw them in 84. Yeah. A, so oh, I
0: guess
1: I'm we'll so talk jealous. about that. I'm so jealous. You know,
0: All right. So thank you again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.
1: Thanks, everybody. Good night.